A quick trigger warning, this episode deals with sexism and talks explicitly about rape culture. You know, sexism, while disproportionately impacting women and girls, also impacts males as well. And in the biggest way is through toxic masculinity. Talking about that has become almost as hot an issue as talking about white privilege. Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. seventh stigma is curable event our host today is me <laughs> but our guest speaker is dr priya pundit welcome priya thank you for coming on thank you for having me so our topic today is about sexism we're going to talk a little bit about societal and individual biases and then also talk a little bit about our own internal biases when it comes to the topic of sexism and how they can come down generationally and how they're portrayed in society and in decisions that we make that can seem very small and obsolete, but really have big impact on uh, the people we love and care for and the people we don't even know that exist in our community that we can be isolating. Um, so really excited to have you here, really excited to talk a little bit more. So hopefully, Everyone tuning in on Facebook Live is checking this out and uh, coming up with questions because we have a good presentation. There's some video in the presentation and we're gonna hit it up with some question and answer about halfway through. And then, um, so when that happens, just write your comments or, or your questions either through the Zoom link or on Facebook Live. I'll read them out uh, to Dr. Punnett and we'll have an ongoing feed, so. And so just a little bit about what Stigma is Curable is about. Um, at the beginning of 2021, the Promethean Project decided that we had to do more in our community to challenge certain stigmas that come up related to mental and physical health and wellness. And we created a mission to have a forum each month and have a different presenter come on and talk about different topics and subjects that they're knowledgeable in and that we believe will make an impact in the community and help work on curing those stigmas. So today it's sexism and uh, I'm gonna kick it over to Dr. Pundit. Well, thank you and thank you all for joining with us or, or watching later. Um, we really, you know, really think this is a great cause um, and I'm hoping that you walk away with learning something 
that you didn't know before, or examining something more critically about yourselves or others. Um, so I'm going to start off with talking about sexism as, as a whole, um, and just de defining what is sexism. So this idea of like prejudice or discrimination based on one sex or gender. Now, the idea is it impacts women um, only, and while it impacts women and, and girls disproportionately, I'm going to kind of talk about the ways that it also impacts boys and men as well. Um, and I think that's a misconception that we don't really talk about a lot, that it does impact all people of all genders. Um, and the impacts are, are very far reaching. And as we kind of go through, you'll see the ways that it kind of just spirals out this domino that impacts all these aspects of people's lives. But you know, when we, when we talked about sexism um, culturally, oftentimes one big topic that is brought up is the gender pay gap. Um, in the US as of 2020, the research is, and while it's gotten a little better, women are still making an average of 84 cents for every dollar that a man makes. Now, sexism, talking about sexism is, is really laced in with, um, it's very intersectional in that different um, other identities do come in play. So when you talk about LGBT identified um, individuals or communities of color, that also, you know, furthers that divide. Um, but today I'm going to try to try to keep it as much as I can on, on just like sexism and the genders, but it's important to kind of know that those additional identities can further someone's oppression and, and stigma that there is placed on them. So just like other minority groups, uh, based on gender, women particularly do experience minority stress and it can lead to stereotype threats now, stereotype threat is the fear of being judged or negatively um, impacted based on these negative stereotypes about their that identity that they hold. So, in this case, gender. And so, the effects include like putting too much attention on the like that person's task um, and feeling insecure about your because you're worried that you're going to be judged based on these negative stereotypes. So for example, women in maybe more STEM-related fields, which is traditionally considered not female-oriented, may feel an excess amount of pressure to, to perform and have to work twice as hard than their male counterparts because they're going to be judged harsher because there's this bias that women shouldn't excel in math and sciences and engineering. Um, and so it can lead to underperformance because you're focused so much on this fear and not really paying attention to your work. So that can lead to that, but it can also lead to a lot of mental health you know, struggles. It can lead to you know, anxiety. It has actual health complications too with with increased blood pressure and heart rate. And so it can lead to a lot of 
mental and physical decline overall. And so it's very, in that way, it's very important to talk about. Um, now as a woman, and most women will, will tell you, at some point in our life, we have been mansplained too. It is when men will try and explain things to, to women with this idea that they don't, they must not know what, what it's about, what the topic is about, or what um, a concept is. I have had a white male mansplain Hinduism to me. Guys, I was born and raised Hindu. I, I think I got it. I know women who are top leaders in their industry who have had men tell them that they should research this so, such and such article. It was written by them. That woman wrote that article. So she is the expert in her field. So it's this idea that women couldn't possibly understand or be experts in their whatever field, whatever topic um, is being talked about. So it's, it's these little things that can really you know, take away a woman's voice in these male-dominated industries. Um, it's not even until, it's sad to say, it's not even until the 1970s and while you know many of us may not have been born at that point, that's still not that far along ago, like our parents' generation, things like that, like 1970s, where women could really go out and get credit and and like financial credit on their own and build their own like financial wealth. It, it's just really, you know, it's shocking to think about when you think about it in that terms, like this is not that far along ago um and there the percentage of women who experience sexual harassment in the workplace as opposed to to men is far greater um and it, it leads to this culture of like oh well we've all had to go through that it's just something you have to struggle through it's become normalized um and so in the 19 70s or so, there was the, the second wave of feminism. Now, feminism has become this dreaded F word. And a lot of times people have these really um, degrading ideas about what it means to be a feminist. And I've heard you know, feminists described as men haters. Um, you have to be a lesbian to be a feminist. It's the only love another woman, um, all of that stuff. And, and really when you, when it comes down to it, it is another way to kind of marginalize, oppress and dismiss a movement that is searching for, for equality and, and women's rights. So what is feminism really? It's the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of equality of the sexes. And at its core, it's this belief that um, women should have full social, economic, and political equality to, to men as well. Um, so it's not women are better than, greater than, any of it's equal to. Um, and I think that's where a lot of issues arise because 
when a majority group is threatened in their power, like they don't want to give up the power and control that they have. We see that with racism um, and, and what we're experiencing right now. And the same thing is happening. Um, like I said, a lot of it is very intersectional and it's happening a lot with, with feminism as well. If you don't want to give up the power and control that majority groups have. So it's just a way to marginalize and minimize when you kind of face it down to, oh, they just hate men, they don't care. Um, but there is a strong lack of equality in a lot of different areas of life. Now I talked a lot about workplace um, challenges that, that women experience and even in you know getting accepted into uh, professional programs or getting hired as into a job um, is more challenging, can be more challenging for women depending on the field that it is, if it's not what's considered a traditional uh, female-dominated field. So math, science, engineering, um, those medicine, that can be much more challenging for women to succeed in because they have to kind of prove themselves that they really know what they're talking about and doing there. But another way that we see a lot of inequality is in parenting. There is this expectation that all women, it's, it's in our instincts and in our DNA that we all want children. I think this idea that when some women come forward and say, I don't want children, they're seen as cold and distant and um, the B word. <laughs> and that's, it, it's just their personal choice of what is good for their life. But we don't see the same happening to men who've made a conscious, conscious decision not to have children. Um, so there's this expectation, but also when, when women do have children, we see a lot of that. Now, I, I do have a son, my husband and I do, and I was very mindful before having him and then after becoming a parent of the lack of equality in the parenting. While my husband and I have made very conscious decisions to be equal in our roles, the fact that he will go and do diaper changes just as much as I will, or spend time playing with him, or take pre-pandemic taking him out um, somewhere on his own. He was seen as like, "Well, wow, aren't you such a great dad? Uh, you're oh look, you're babysitting your kid. Oh, I must be lucky because I'm getting help, and, and like he's he's a." Uh, helping me out where the expectation is as me as a mom I'm expected to do these things I'm not given any credit for it it's just my role but he also helped my husband helped create my, my son too and and it's his child he's not babysitting he's not doing anything less than what a parent should be doing are we really trying to promote this idea that our our husbands and fathers of our children should be less involved. It shouldn't be that they should, like they are just babysitting our children, they shouldn't be involved. It's, it, it's this dichotomy because we, on one hand, we've talked as a society about wanting 
progress and wanting more involvement and, and seeing the benefits of children having equal parent involvement, yet these small throwaway comments, what, what feels like throwaway comments, continue to perpetuate this cycle. Um, release, so one, one thing when I was getting married, I chose not to change my name. My gosh, it's like the world ended. <laughs> Um, my family was okay with it. They understood my reasonings and my husband was totally fine with it. Um, I'd already, I just received my doctorate with my, my, um, born name. It was also a sense of identity for me, um, in that that's, that's who I was, who I am. I was raised with that. There's a lot of heritage that comes with my name. No, I'm not saying that the people who choose to change their names are less than that's that's their choice but the expectation that was there like well, why aren't you the questioning i got well of course that's what you do it, it felt more along the lines of ownership um i was my husband's property while i was transferring from my dad's property to my husband's property so i should be expected to change my name and there's a lot of questions like well isn't your husband um upset isn't he offended? Isn't his family um, upset with you for not choosing their name? Again, these the messaging becomes the expectation that well, you, you now belong to that family, so you should be like, I'm not, I don't feel like I'm any less part of the family, but I just choose to have my own identity. Um, so these are the ways in which I think we don't even, think about, but they branch out like the idea of sexism really just reach reaches far in, in different areas of our life. Now, earlier I said that, you know, sexism, while disproportionately impacting women and girls, also impacts males as well. And in the biggest way is through toxic masculinity. I feel like toxic masculinity, talking about that has become almost as hot button issue as talking about white privilege. When you say the words, people, particularly the male population, become very defensive and don't want to talk about it because it seems like you're saying that to be male or, or to be masculine is bad. And it's not that. It's there are different forms of masculinity and toxic masculinity is built on the idea that anything feminine is bad, is weak, and you have to be the antithesis of that. And so the way it operates is, it kind of goes in stages. So we see a lot of it with um, the first stage being uh, forced gender upbringing. Now, I think the I, I think you see a lot of that if you're uh, a parent, if you've ever worked in a childcare setting, if you work with children, young children, you really see the genderization of the like the dichotomy very early on. I would say like even during pregnancy, because there is a lot of like, well, what are you having? Just need to know um, the idea, like 
blue has to be for boys, pink for girls, you know, all this stuff. Um, and, and this idea in people's head of like what, a, what makes up a boy, trucks and cars and, um, you know, playing in the mud, what makes up a girl. So pink and flowers and being dainty and playing with dolls. So it's all these, this idea that from a very, even prenatal age, you, you have, a di there's a divide and a, and a difference. Um, and so the, the whole idea of traditional gender roles, how we're expected to act, speak, um, conduct ourselves based on the, the sex we've been assigned at birth. So like I said, starts early in childhood. Now, um, a lot of the ways that I've seen it impact the male um, population negatively are statements like, oh my God, my, my son's been called a chick magnet, a ladies man, a heartbreaker. I don't know about the rest of you, but these are not attributes that I would want for my child. I would want him to be raised to be respectful and not purposely go out to, let's go break some hearts now. Um, all these things, whereas, whereas the labels that you see assigned to girls are princess, you know, sweet. It, it's just this complete divide. And so it starts there and then it kind of builds. So you're you're taught very early on, I would say probably after after infancy, boys are taught, boys don't cry. So you have been taught to repress, emotionally repress. You're not supposed to cry, you're supposed to be this idea of like tough and dominant, and then eventually leads to sexual or physical aggression. That is how you prove your masculinity in this in this system that you are, you know, really aggressive, you're, you're going forth, you're, you're protector, but who are you protecting? Um, and it results in a lot of shame, internalized homophobia. How many of us have heard the term like no homo if a, if a man is talking about something um, that could be at all considered feminine um, so that they have make very clear that they're not at all gay because to be gay or to be anything attributed to femininity is, is weak. Um, you don't want to be called a sissy or the P word. Again, the idea that to be feminine is to be very weak. Um, so it becomes this internalized shame and repression. Like I can't share my emotions. If my emotions are anything vulnerable, they have the only emotion I can operate on is anger and rage. And it leads to, contributes to depression, contributes to anxiety, contributes to feelings of isolation, like they're the only ones who feel this way, and then leads to rage and violence. And then goes to harming um, self and others harming yourself by repressing parts of who you are and not being true to yourself um, and kind of keeping that buried inside. And, and as a 
psychologist, oftentimes I'll tell my clients that with emotional repression, um, you know, when we keep our feelings in, our, our bodies are like, a, are like a vessel and our emotions fill it up. And we have two options if we are never letting it out. Is it gonna have a gradual overflow or, or it's gonna explode? And so we see a lot of that. And, and oftentimes with toxic masculinity, it is seen by kind of taking it out on those vulnerable populations. So really targeting LGBT um, identified people or women, um, minority groups, to as a way of kind of having that dominance to feel better is, is what we do is when we're bullying somebody it, it, to make us feel better to assuage our self like bolster our self-esteem we have to dominate others and that's the cycle of toxicity and then it kind of you know you see this systemic um problem in that they're you know men are least likely to access, um, are not least, but like less likely to access uh, mental health services. We saw that a lot during my work in college populations, the percentages of male clients, particularly, you know, and then again, on top of that, communities of color, like men of color, much greater, um, lesser, uh, percentages than, than females because it is considered weak or um, and to be, put yourself in a horrible position to talk about your feelings. So you're not seeing people get the help that they might need or to be their more authentic selves and living with a lot of self-hate and then taking it out of others. And then it, it just kind of, from there, at one point that cycle is gonna repeat, whether they're a role model to somebody, become a parent themselves, they then enact the same cycle that was enacted on them. And so we see it kind of repeat. And I'll say that I don't think men are the only ones to blame for those cycles because women, we also buy into that. We buy into, well, men, boys shouldn't cry and, and um, boys should be in sports and a lot of times it's this idea that boys should be in certain fields and boys should be playing with certain things and as opposed to others. Um, and so I think that's where it really impacts, this has a greater impact on our whole population, not just, um, just women. And from toxic masculinity, and, and sexism, we kind of arrive at rape culture. So rape culture is not, it was a term I think first used in the 70s. It's this idea that we don't just go from nothing to violence against women. It's built, it's built on a, a pyramid, if you will. And at this point, I'm going to share my screen so you can see it's graphic. All right, Are we, can you see it? Okay, so this is a pyramid of the stages of, of 
rape culture that leads to the violence against women. So it starts with normalization. You start with having these sexist or rape jokes. People do make jokes about like, oh, she, you know, all she needs is to get laid um, or joking about to women, like, I can't even go into it, but boys will be boys. We hear a lot of that. Um, it's this idea that boys shouldn't be held accountable for their actions. It's, it's totally innate in their nature, who they are, that's okay. Um, and then we see a lot of victim blaming. Well, what was she wearing? What was she doing out that late? Was she drunk? As if those qualities, you know, allowed for those, it, it, it's okay. It's okay that something happened to that person. Then it's followed by degradation. Um, you know, having somebody stop you, take non-consensual photos, catcalling. I don't think I know many women um, in my personal life who haven't experienced that one time or another. And it's, it's quite scary. Um, whereas I've heard people say, well, you should feel flattered. They think you're attractive. Quite the opposite. I, I think it's really um, scary that you're objectifying me and I don't know what you can then do to me. Um, it's, a, it's dehumanizing. It's saying that that person doesn't isn't a person deserving of respect. Um, removal of autonomy. So sexual coercion, like um, pressuring a woman in a relationship. I've you know, counseled a lot of, of younger students who may have been with their, you know, first boyfriends or first partners, um, not ready for that step but felt like if you really love me, then you would you would do this um, and, and felt that pressure to engage sexually in, in stuff that they didn't feel comfortable doing. Um, roping, so again, taking away that person's uh, person, personhood and, and getting into their physical space. Now, a early example of this, um, a lot of times, you know, we hear, we've seen messaging on TV and in television shows, movies. Um, maybe you've experienced this in your, your personal life, but girls uh, will get their hair pulled on or their bra strap um, snapped or whatever at school and are told, oh, well, he's only picking on you because he likes you. So it's this idea that we should, women should, want that type of male attention and that attention is based on removal of their personhood, their autonomy and, and acts of violence towards them. So it's, it, you're, it's normalized at a young age. It's said it's okay. Um, and so even though people will say, say like, oh, don't make a big deal out of it. It's not a thing. This is what the messaging becomes that okay, well, I guess it's okay that someone does this to my body without my consent and I should be okay with it. And then women also internalize these messages and are more vulnerable to these acts of aggression. And then we get to the explicit violence. So again, like I said, it doesn't become, we don't just go from nothing to, 
to rape and then allowing it as a society, these are the, the foundations it's built upon to then lead us to victim blaming, slut shaming, and not holding the rapist accountable. Now this goes both ways too. There is definitely underreporting in males um, who have been victims of rape because the idea is, well, men can't be raped. Um, they have to be the more dominant sexual partner. Um, all of these things, uh, this, this concept, there's a lot of uh, TV show, um, there's an episode of Shameless, an episode of South Park that have touched on the, the differences between if it was a male teacher sleeping with a female student, it's seen as wrong. Whereas if it's a male student being preyed upon by a female teacher, you're the man, that must be the, the boy's like dream. That's why would you consider that rape? Because um, every boy has this hot teacher fantasy. And so that also becomes where men don't report, they, they feel more shamed also. So again, it really impacts both. Now, you know, a lot of our media does play into rape culture um, and normalizing these, you know, all these messaging. So one really famous example of that, and I, I think that came into controversy a couple of years ago, was examining um, the song, Baby, It's Cold Outside. It's a really classic Christmas song, right? It's from, I don't know, 40s. And, but a lot of the lyrics are very problematic. She, I think at one point she asked him, what's in this drink? And he kind of dismisses it um, like, oh, I should really get home. People are gonna talk. My parents are gonna be up waiting for me. And, and he kind of, um, his whole messaging is, well, it, it's fine to stay with me and, and kind of pressuring her. And, and it's cold outside, just stay a little longer. Um, and that, like the whole idea of like what's in the string was really concerning because that is part of, of rape culture is drugging women and, and forcing yourself um, upon them. So while I wanted to play part of that song, I, for time I'm not going to, but I'm gonna play a song that's a little bit more relevant to today. A couple of years ago, Justin Bieber came out with the song, What Do You Mean? And there was a, a video that accompanied it. And I thought that was, when I first saw the video, I was absolutely horrified. Um, the song's very catchy, unfortunately, and people don't always critically examine these things in our day-to-day our -day life. But I want you, as you're watching this, to, or listening to this, to really yeah, pay attention to the lyrics and pay attention to what you're seeing um, and, and figure out what you feel should be, what, what, should, what is wrong with the picture. So I think we've seen enough, but the whole song is about Justin not feeling sure what is what she's saying. She he should really believe what she's saying. She says yes, but they're really no, vice versa. And has her kidnapped, but then they end up in a rave that he, you know, um, put together, and she's totally happy with that and totally not horrified that she was just put into a murder van. 
at, you know, and blindfolded. Um, so yeah, the messaging, and I, and I think this is something we've heard a lot, like, oh, when she says no, it doesn't really mean no. Um, they're playing hard to get, coy, all these things. But again, this is how we, you know, are culturally, we justify acts of aggression towards women. They don't really mean what they say. They play mind games, so you really don't know. Just think about the opposite of what they're saying. Um, but that kind of gets us to the conversation of consent. And I full graphic here. I'm gonna go over what is consent. And when I worked in one of my colleges, we would talk about consent like pizza. So let's imagine that you have, it's you and a friend or it's maybe you and a group of people, however you're, however you identify, but you're, you're ordering pizza together. Now, you like anchovies, but the other person hates them or is allergic to them. When you're ordering pizza, you're not gonna force them, or I would hope you aren't gonna force them like to eat the anchovy pizza. You're more likely to kind of have a conversation about like, hey, what do you like? Uh, what can I order? Or maybe you order something and they order something they like. Uh, you reach some sort of compromise of what you're, what you're gonna, what your order is gonna consist of. But maybe they said, yeah, I'm totally down for pizza. And then the pizza came and they, you know, I changed my mind. I don't really want pizza. I'm not gonna force them to then shove a slice of pizza in their mouth. Or maybe they started off eating the pizza and they became unconscious. Again, you're not gonna shove it down their throat while they're unconscious. These are all ways to kind of think about like the absurdity of that situation is literally what we can compare to rape and sexual violence. So consent has to be very clear and an active process. It's both understood through words and actions that show that people, people or multiple partners are mutually understanding and agreeing and giving permission. It's not implied just because I paid for dinner that I'm going to get anything or, or because you came home with me, um, we're now automatically gonna engage in something. Um, there can't just be like, oh, well, they didn't say no, therefore it is a yes. Um, because those are not the only options. Um, silence is not consent. Just because someone doesn't say anything does not necessarily, well, does never implies consent. And any sort of hesitancy, I'm not sure, maybe does not imply consent. It has to be willing. It can never be given under pressure. It's not consent if someone's not actively willing to engage in it, but it's coerced into the situation or if there is a power dynamic in place. If someone there, you know, is a employee-employer relationship, someone has some active power over them, um, an adult versus a minor, any sort of power um, dynamic going on, that's, that's not a consent of coercion. You're, you're kind of playing on that person's vulnerability. Um, so it can't be earned through physical violence or um, 
or emotional manipulation, anything like that. It has to be coherent. So if someone is so inebriated or messed up um, that they can't, you know, they're not clear, they're slurring their words, they're incapacitated of some kind, they, they can't, they don't have the, the mental capacity in that moment to give consent. If they're unconscious, they absolutely can't consent. Um, and then it has to be ongoing. So it's an ongoing process of every single time. Just because I gave consent one time does not automatically qualify consent the next time. And this is also another conversation that I've had um, during another presentation is just because you're in a relationship with somebody or you're married does not imply consent because your partner does not automatically have ownership of your body. They, they don't get, it's not, it's not part of the, the um, contract of, of your relationship that you have to do anything that you don't want to, or at that time you don't feel like it. You can be raped in the context of a relationship too. And I think that's a big misunderstanding that people have. So I think, I know I've gone through a lot of topics, and, but these are all the different ways that sexism really um, is perpetuated in our culture. It kind of permeates all these different avenues. Um, but I want to leave time for, for some questions. So I will end my part there. Thank you so much for such a great presentation on sexism and also getting in depth on how that can lead to, to the severity of rape culture and how that manifests in not just actions, but also in behaviors that we allow and terms that we allow and, and you know, just these smaller things that people often wave away and say, oh, no big deal, but how it builds on that pyramid that you had showed earlier. So thank you for that. Um, I do want to just point out, I, I did go back and, and everywhere it's shared, and I'll put it before this too, I'm just going to put a trigger warning that we do talk about rape culture, because I think that's also really important for people to understand. And so once the video is done, I'll, I'll put that in. And I'll, when we do the podcast, I, I will add that in too, just so that people can uh, choose if they want to engage or not in, in that way. So thank you again for the presentation. So we have some questions and answers that we're gonna get into um, right now. Let me go to Facebook Live and just see if there's anything. No questions yet, but we're gonna wait and see what comes up. But so I do have a, maybe we can have a Discord together and communicate together a little bit as we're waiting for some questions to come in and, and see where this goes. So I wanna own my own privilege as a straight white male in America and, and really let everyone know that's the, the point of view I'm coming from. And, you know, I, I want to own that before we get into the Discord and conversation, just so that that frame of reference can kind of be um, understood. And so that way, you know, I, I can kind of just realize the privilege I have to, to talk in a certain way and to have this conversation with you today. So I just want to own that before we get any further. Um, I want to talk, well, I want to ask, actually, uh, we talked about ownership of, of this and 
societal um, biases, individual biases, and in internalized biases that we have. And you've mentioned that you're a mother of a, a young uh, son. And so uh, I wanted to just ask if you don't mind sharing a little bit of, uh, you know, a little bit more on what you see that and how you combat that as someone who is trying to raise an educated young man on this stigma that exists re regarding sex and sexism and, and um, how you see that manifesting in the future too. Yeah, so I see, you know, like I said, I, I saw a lot of it even before he was born. Um, and and it, it's not like I wasn't aware, it was just really in your face. And, and so when I was pregnant, I, you know, my husband and I had already had conversations about a lot of these things that we were going to encounter. Um, that's, you know, pregnancy, preg being a pregnant woman is its own different transient experience of all sorts of sexism, all sorts of lots of autonomy. People feel uh, entitled to touch your stomach. Um, to ask you really personal questions, um, you know, to give you unsolicited advice about motherhood and, and all sorts of things. Um, and so there's another situation where I knew I was going to encounter it. And one thing to know is a whole different thing for it to happen and how are you going how do you actually handle it in the moment? And I had already had a conversation with, with Tom, my husband, about um, like, I already know you're gonna get a ton of more credit than me. Like when we go out and stuff, like you're gonna be, you know, praised. Like, look at this great human for helping out, helping out. Um, and so parenting or babysitting, um, so involved. Whereas I, I knew I wasn't gonna get that. Credit. And so I was like, how are you going to handle that? How are you going to have that conversation? Um, because I thought, thought that was really important to both of us that, you know, you can, it's an opportunity to educate. Like, hey, do you recognize what you're implying by saying this? Like, I know it's coming from a, a place of good, but the message being that it's so abnormal or sh it shouldn't be expected that a father also is involved. Um, with our son, like I was very, um, I, I would have done this either way, having a boy or a girl. I did not want to reveal the gender. So when we had our baby shower, we did a gender reveal baby shower because everyone had already bought their gifts because I didn't want gender gifts. I didn't want like, okay, knowing it's a boy, he's only going to get blue and trucks and cars and all of that stuff. Um, so very intentional in my own purchases that I have an equal mix of like pink and purple products for him too and floral things and girl clothes, which by the way, when they're babies, like you know, they don't have different shapes. So why is something a girl versus white clothes? It's beyond me. So I got a mix of, of different things and 
you know, boys can wear pink, real men wear pink and own it. Um, so I think those are ways in which parenting, we can be very intentional. And I have a good amount of books for him that have female driven leads or talk about important women throughout history. Um, and I know that we've talked about the way in which you're raising your daughter with female empowerment and non-traditional gender roles. And I think it's great that she likes like, you know, comic book stuff and playing with swords and things that, you know, when I was growing up, I have one brother and two cousins boy cousins, so I'm the only girl. While they're four Ninja Turtles, I always had to be April, the reporter, because I was the girl. Like, that's so dumb. And then we've talked about, I've talked about my, my family since then, and we totally get it. Um, but we didn't have the modeling for that. Like, hey, let's think about this a little bit more. And, and it's okay. Like that's the other thing is I think with a lot of um, critically examining and being intentional of our choices and, and what we want to model to the next generation, you know, I'm a girly girl and I own that. Like, I think that's okay. I think there now sometimes can be like a flip message if you can't be uber feminine um, because then you're, you know, putting yourself in a box. Yeah, I, I'm, you know, I'm very much feminine in those ways, but then there's some interests that I have that are more male driven, like comic books and, and things like that. And, and while I'm in a helping profession that is more female dominated, you know, to, I'm still a, a doctorate level professional in a science field and don't always get as much respect as my male peers. So it, it's all balanced. You know, you, I don't think you have to be one thing or another. It's not an either or, black or white. It's this whole con like continuum. Um, and I think that's what people really have a hard time with to the point, to the like, you know, having seeing a lot of people having a lot of trouble with um, non-gendered language. People really can't get over, like, are they a he or are they a she? Like, what I need to know. There was actually an experiment done in the 80s, I want to say, where these psychologists had a baby and dressed the baby. I don't even know if it was a boy or a girl but just dress the baby in the most neutral colors um, of that time and, and had no identifying traits if there was a boy or a girl. People, it made people so uncomfortable not to know. Like it was insane. So it's, it, we definitely, that, that's where we definitely have our biases. We have like this need to categorize, I think, um, us, them, you know, boy, girl, white, black. But that's where we need to kind of give like, why do we have this like need? Why can't it just be that they are, people are what they are, they, and that's okay. 
Sorry, it's a very long winter. No, no, no. It's perfect, though. I think I think it's really important um, to to illustrate those things. I know that we, you and I, have talked more deeply about this, but I also think it's really important to to talk about internalized biases, and I see that almost daily. In, in one, the work I do; two, being a father, raising a young daughter, and then just navigating through the world. You know, I remember. One of my past guests on the podcast, she was a supervisor of mine and she came on and we, she did a lot of great work with me on, on this kind of stuff because I wasn't even aware of it at a certain point in my life because I remember before my daughter was born, I think I was just getting married. She had asked me, oh, you know, like, do you, do you want a, a daughter or a son? And I was like, well, I kind of want a son because I want you know, our last name to carry on. And, you know, she just kind of shook her head at me and was like, really, dude? And I was like, what? I didn't even realize that concept. And now she had a great conversation. She called me in instead of calling me out and, and very professional. And I, and I love her for that. I think she's, she's I used to call her my work uh, godmother because she took me under her wing and really helped me cultivate an approach to one, my career, but then also just different ways to, to view the world. And, you know, I thank God for that moment because my ability to be called into my own internal biases and, and have it kind of laying bare without, you know, feeling called out for it. Like, here's the, here's where the work's done. It took me a long time because I suffered from anxiety and depression and my own self-esteem and that bar that door just went straight up and she helped cultivate that. And I, you know, if she's listening to you're awesome. <laughs> um, but, but I think there's so much to internalize biases that are really important on both sides of the conversation on, on the multiple sides of the conversation, because we know that, you know, gender and sex aren't fluid and that, you know, I think there's a ton more that we could talk about this, but I'm wondering how have you, in the work you've done, and maybe even in your personal life, how have you been able to call people in to this conversation and realize their own internalized bias or realize their the societal bias that's related to the conversation that we're talking about? So, you know, I had a really great um, co-intern during my internship. Um, shout out to Adrian, who's watching. He uh, did a lot of work on um, toxic masculinity, and that was like his area of focus with um, sex offenders. Um, and even though, like, while they were court mandated, like, how can we have some real work here and help them grow and understand, you know, the ways in which culturally have kind of perpetuated this behavior. Um, so he taught me a lot about how to have those conversations with um, male clients, female clients as well, um, and kind of examining like, you know, how has culture kind of gotten us to this point? How has it impacted your life and your experiences um, in, in kind of both sides of it and, and kind of how can we shift the narrative for you? And so he would do what um, 
exercise with, with men of like the man box, like, okay, so everything in the box, like that's supposed to be masculine, dominant, all of it, like what you're supposed to be. Now, what are the things that you actually are want to be or what is your ideal self? And this can be work for like anybody, for any identity, but really like to the, his, the goal of his exercise was to challenge them. Like that's traditional masculinity. Um, and so I've really worked with a lot of clients on that. I've worked with women, particularly, you know, I've, I've seen a lot of, I've developed a focus with uh, women in unhealthy relationships, whether that been these toxic friendships. Female friendships can be really unhealthy sometimes. Um, they can be based, fueled by internalized sexism and gender roles as much as unhealthy romantic relationships, like these heteronormative relationships that are really unhealthy and kind of busting the, the myth of, of what is abuse. I think oftentimes we just think like abuse is physical, it's seen marks and bruises and broken bones. And it's it's not. It's it's the it can start with the degradation of that person's spirit and and just breaking them down and making them less than and, and subservient and really helping them kind of explore the ways of unfortunately those relationships are are kind of modeled. I'm watching this new show. I don't know if you've um, you've seen it. Or heard of it actually um one of our old co-workers dogs was featured in it um but kevin can f himself on amc and and it's it's very how do they describe it it's like it's dark it is trying to explore the injustice done injustice done to um the sitcom wives and like how oftentimes the women in the shows are, are there for like comic relief or for the husband to kind of, kind of talk down to, you, you tend to see these like unattractive men, not just necessarily physically unattractive, but just have like terrible qualities to them, have these really tropey wives and, and what these women will put up with. And, that and it sounds like just kind of exploring like how this messaging like what kind of goes on like the darkness behind the scenes of the the comedy and the relief and the bright moments it's a really great show um i think it's doing a really good job of of kind of pointing out just how effed up society has been towards this messaging um and so I think in, in my work, that's kind of how I've been doing it. I um, personally, you know, again, every every action, like with, with my not changing my name and making these decisions with parenting have been very intentional. And I think that's where a lot of us can go. Um, those of us who are, whether you're a parent or some sort of role model to um, a young person, you have a lot of influence there to model for the next generation. 
what do you want to model? Do you want to model more of the same that has negatively, probably negatively impacted you or someone you know? Or do you want to kind of break free of those, those chains um, and have the next generation have something better? And a lot of us will say we want better. Like that's, you know, every parenting generation tends to say like, oh, we want better for our kids than was for us. And this is one way we can kind of do that. And I think it starts with calling out sexism when you're seeing it. If you hear like an inappropriate joke, don't laugh because it's easier. Well, maybe, maybe you're not calling that person out and embarrassing them, but maybe you're having a conversation with them in private. Like, hey, what did you think was funny there? Let's talk about that. Let's or what, what really the messaging was about and, and kind of those ways. Be really intentional with what you're teaching your children or, or the, the kids in your life or what you're modeling for young adults, um, the relationships they're seeing so that they're not perpetuating that. I mean, those are all, all ways. And for men specifically, so um, my co-intern and I created this intern project, we, we did a whole um, intergroup dialogue project that was talking about like a curriculum to talk about race, gender, and sexuality. And uh, one of the things we found was one of the, a famous thing on, on race, on unpacking white privilege was this uh, professor from Wellesley, Peggy McIntosh had created this checklist like of white privilege so that you can kind of see a white person can kind of identify things they don't have to experience as a white person as opposed to a person of color. Other professors have since taken those model, that model and, and um, created a heteronormative checklist, but also a male checklist. So for men out there, if you want to kind of more critically explore your biases and things that you never have to think about, I really encourage you to look at that checklist and kind of look at like, wow, I've never really had to consider like, do you, you know, make a point never to walk out at night at past a certain time, or are you always looking over your shoulder? Things like that, things that you may not have to think about in your life because of the privilege of being there. That's perfect. Shout out to uh, Christina's dog for being on that show. That's awesome. I know. Um, you, you kind of went right into my second question and answered that of not only how do you, how do you recognize internal bias, but I think also what you can do to combat that internal bias. I think what's really hard with this and so much of what we're doing moving forward is like I was talking about in my experience of that defensiveness and viewing it as an attack when in reality it's, it's a, a invitation to come in and look from a different lens, come in and look from a different perspective. And if you can actually do that, you can see that, you know, even if you don't experience it or you don't think you experience it, if you start to look through the, the lens of someone else's viewpoint, you can see how hurtful these things are. You can see how hurtful it is to perpetuate them. And can you stop your own practice in it you can help others in your family or your friendship groups or your own children to kind of do that. And that's one of the things I'm really excited about and proud of this, 
you know, these upcoming generation of, of children is that, you know, they have parents who are doing that. They have family members who are doing that. And the hope is, like you said, generationally getting better and progressively better and not having to deal with it. You know, we had youth leading rallies last year. And I don't know about you, but I wasn't leading any rallies when I was their age. I was content with my comic books and chicken fingers and French fries, right? Um, and I, I'm really proud of knowing some of these youth and getting to work with them and, and engage with them. I'm also really proud of them taking a stand against some of their generational um, parentage that perpetuates some of this stuff as well. And, you know, my, my nephew just got a pink tricycle and he loves the color pink and he paints his toenails. And I think it's the coolest thing in the world that my sister is raising them that way, because I think there's so much love and acceptance and empowerment in that, not just for my daughter and future generations of children, but also for, you know, men who find themselves, um, boys who find themselves stuck in, in this bubble of what do I do? I mean, yeah, men too, like, it absolutely ripples down and, and you know, our, like, the movie Meet the Bockers, you know, Ben Slurge's character is a male nurse, and there's a lot of jokes made at his expense for that. That's a, a really important field as well, and, and he used to say, you know, men can't kick ass at it, um, or to be a stay-at-home dad. Um, you know, it's always the expectation that moms will stay at home, but, you know, sometimes it's that, you know, a male parent who is, has more of that either flexibility or, um, maternal instinct, <laughs> and it's like the, the, even the, you know, that phrase, right, it's all sexist in itself, like, only mothers can be nurturing in that way. Um, and, and also like, you know, we, you see with, with same sex uh, families, you know, if well, you know, your child is not of the same, uh, is not the opposite sex child, like get them influences from others that will kind of enact that role model for them as well. It, it, it's not just like about a mom and a dad, whatever your your you know, family dynamics are, you know, just finding ways to model both like different ways of being, more progressive ways of being with, with that child is I think really important. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, it's been an awesome experience to have you here and to talk on this subject. And I know there's a lot of fantastic information on here. So, you know, the live video will be up in the event. I'll share it on my page and the Promethean Project page. And then we always take the audio and turn it into a podcast. So if you missed it today, you're probably not hearing this. So I don't know why I'm saying that, but <laughs> if you're just tuning in, um, there will be more chances to, to check out what we talked about here. And if you have any questions, feel free to email myself or comment on the video and one of us will get back to you and 
continue the conversation. This is just like all the other stigma is curable events. It's not just a one and done situation. This is a ongoing conversation that we want to keep having and a community around it and have it evolve as things evolve with it. So I really appreciate you and I'm honored that you came on and spoke to us today. It was great to be here. I hope listeners, you take away something from this. Um, and yeah, definitely comment, ask questions, and more than happy to answer.